This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Ferro and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the city of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. We have a rally at a close. The FTSE up by a little more than 1%. In the United States, the S&P 500 up by around about six-tenths of 1%. Guy, more options to deploy over in China, apparently, to stabilise the situation. No doubt part of the reason we're pushing high once again. Yeah, it's still a massive head-scratcher, though, isn't it? Absolutely. Take a look at at what... um what happened with Puma and Adidas today? I find it absolutely amazing. Two companies that basically came out and said, before coronavirus, our China business looks really good. Now that coronavirus is a problem, it looks really bad. <laughs> they posted okay numbers, but the market bid these stock up, stocks up massively today because basically what they did was they said, it's going to be transitory. Yeah, We're going to look at the, the, the prior coronavirus numbers, extrapolate them beyond the coronavirus, which we see as temporary, and as a result of which, we think things are going to bounce back really strongly. Um, and and Puma was up by like 12% today. The other thing that really caught my eye today was a massive, massive move on dollar yen. I really what aggressive. What was behind that? Tom I'm and I still, were talking about that all day. Still trying to figure it out. One eleven um, handle. So it's, it's, uh, apparently it's about kind of fun flows out of, out of – Derek Halpern was trying to explain to me earlier. Fun flows out of China as a result of the yield change and, and – it's it's kind of very in the weeds, but but the potential for it to move up to around one twelve, Derek said, was kind of there, and he also sees a move, kind of euro dollar down to, to kind of one hundred five being perfectly possible, in what he sees as a short term kind of story for the dollar going higher. Look, a couple of we questions for me, guy. This market has taken corporate guidance. And this coronavirus and the containment effort has taken a jackhammer to the corporate guidance, and yet this yeah. market has held up really well. That attitude, I mean, what always fascinates me, and I'm always trying well, to that's probe. Puma, isn't it? I'm, yeah, I'm trying to ask these questions. How will investors respond to any given catalyst, any piece of stimulus? And my question today basically is, will we respond the same way we've responded to the corporate guidance in the same way to the economic data that comes out this Friday? And what I'm basically asking is if, if it's dreadful... Yeah on Friday for Eurozone PMIs, are we just going to sit here and say the same things we've said about the corporate guidance? It's transitory. Europe will bounce back. Or are we going to have a different conversation? What moves the dial? Where's the inflection I don't know. Is it the data in February, March, April? What is it? What is transitory? Define transitory for me. I simply do not know what that word means at the moment. I'm assuming, judging by everything I've, I've heard and read, that it means Q1. Transitory basically is coronavirus is contained within Q1. There's very little spillover effect into Q2. But but all I hear from the corporates is clearly there is going to be an effect into Q2. And if you think about it, I, how quickly will consumers – how brave are consumers going to be about going back out to stores? I don't know. I, but you're really worried about getting coronavirus. There are still cases yeah. out there. Are you going to go shopping? Well, the conversation I've had with people that have got – factories in china it's how difficult it is to ramp up production a to get the staff in which is really really tough and then b they're starting to worry about a whole range of things apparently in each and every individual province there's different rules about whether you should be paying them whilst these workers are still at home and then everyone's almost holding their breath hoping that there aren't sicknesses 
in the factories. So yep. as you try and ramp up production again, do you start to see the spread of the virus once more? And then you have to shut things down again. So we're at this really critical phase of things in the coming weeks as people try and get production and get workers back. Let's get some headlines. Charlie Peller, over to you. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Boris Johnson's government has unveiled plans to end what it calls the UK's dependence on, quote, cheap, low-skilled labor and deliver on its pledge to halt freedom of movement from the European Union after Brexit. According to a government policy paper out today, under a points-based immigration system to come into effect on January 1st, 2021, workers must prove they can speak English, have a verified job offer, and meet a points threshold based on their specific skills, qualifications, and prospective salaries. Qatar Airways has lifted its stake in British Airways parent IAG, tightening its grip on the European carrier after expansion in the Gulf was thwarted by a Saudi-led embargo. The increase to 25.1% from 21.4% comes less than a month after IAG removed a cap on non-European union investment. Researchers were able to trick a Tesla into speeding by putting a strip of electrical tape over a speed limit sign, spotlighting the kinds of potential vulnerabilities facing automated driver systems. Technicians at McAfee placed a piece of tape horizontally across the middle of the three on a 35-mile-an-hour speed limit sign. The change caused the vehicle to read the limit as 85 miles an hour, and its cruise control system automatically accelerated, again according to research released by McAfee. The latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrell, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much, sir. There is just so much to discuss, and it all goes back to one thing, the faith in the policymaker in China. We always talk about these puts in the market, the Fed put, the Trump put. The sheephood is what is really driving things at the moment for me. Just the faith in the Chinese policymaker to, one, contain the virus and, B, two, be able to stabilise the economic situation and the fallout from that containment effort. And there's three words that were used by Mohammed Al-Aaron on the programme that have really stuck with me, Guy. The belief that, one, things are temporary, two, they're containable, and three, they're reversible. And he just doubts every single one of them at the moment. Given the weakness that we had coming into this, we've talked about this so much. Germany's on the brink of recession. It's stagnated in Q4. Japan shot itself in the foot by hiking the sales tax rate, and now they face quite a deep recession off the back of it. The overlay on top of that is what is happening with the coronavirus. And what I find quite amazing is that we'll all point to these green shoots. The recovery in places like Europe and places like China, the relative stability that we started to see in the data was basically fragile it was it was early this recovery hadn't been secured and now we're about to get clipped around the head again with quite a big growth shock from the world's second largest economy yeah and i think at the moment everybody doesn't i I think we've been conditioned john to believe that that all of these events are temporary I think the market has learned time and time again that that is the right reaction because that has been what you have been paid for over the last few years. I don't know yet because there simply isn't the information available to make a determination on how long this situation is going to last and what kind of firepower the Chinese can unleash uh, to, to compensate for it. I simply do not know. And I don't see anybody else out there that does either. The market is operating on faith at the moment. Yeah, that is it, and that is it. 
because the news coming out of the data and the news coming out of the corporate landscape at the moment tells a very different story than the one that the market is telling. Well, faith in the policymaker, and I think that's really important. And when I assess any policymaker, I make it very simple. I think about ability and willingness. And I go back to Mohammed's conversation a little bit earlier because he made a series of really great comments on that. The moment that we start to question either ability and or willingness of a policymaker to deploy stimulus, then we're in trouble. And he has several examples that the RBA, for instance, down in Australia was showing less of a willingness to step back in because of what was happening with financial stability issues. That the ECB, are we going to start to question their ability to really start to curtail any fallout? In Europe, And if this starts to pop up from policymaker to policymaker worldwide, then we've got ourselves a problem, I think. But the policymakers have been telling us, particularly the ECB, that they have very little ammunition left to deploy. Uh, and, and therefore, there are just mixed messages here. What else can the ECB do? The, probably, the ECB's only got probably another 10, maybe 30 basis points worth of cuts left in there. It could do more QE. But, but trying to keep the governing council on board at the moment, trying to unify the governing council, looks really, really tricky. And, and we are placing a lot of faith in China's ability, the ECB's ability. We're going to hear from the Fed a little bit later on. It's going to be interesting to see what the last set of minutes uh, had to say about all of these issues uh, and exactly when they're going to be tapering that bill purchase story as well. Lots still to talk about. Uh, we're going to be going to Zug next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Let's go to Zug in Switzerland now. Uh, Alice McCaig joining us from Fern Wealth. Uh, John and I have been kicking around the key subjects for these markets right now. Al, we're trying to understand what temporary means and why the market is so sanguine about the ability of the global economy to push through the coronavirus and bounce back in a meaningful way. What do you make of this debate? Um, uh, evening, gents. Uh, well, look, first things first, I, I don't think we've necessarily seen the end of, uh, of, of this coronavirus. And, and we haven't necessarily turned the corner that I think we, we can't get a flavor of that in, in the press um, due to the incubation period. It'll be interesting to see what materializes in the next two or three weeks in the rest of the world. Um, uh, yes, it may well be contained within China, but I, I'm not sure, not quite so convinced that we are going to see an increase um, outside of China in that time period. But right here, right now, I guess the markets are, are absorbed by the fact that there, there is a real proactive nature uh, of commentary and actions coming out of China. And I guess they've, they've stolen the European mantra of whatever it takes. We're hearing stories about um, and, and it was Bloomberg breaking this this afternoon about uh, China stepping in potentially uh, and, and bailing out HNA. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that we, I guess, we're expecting to happen. The other broader picture, of course, is that over the last two, three years, we've seen a lot of news stories materialize that independently on their own could have been enough to maybe derail market momentum. And these stories have tended to drag out and out. And as they've dragged on longer, their power has been diminished and the markets have just got on with things. Um, and, and I think the market participants like ourselves feel we just can't take a, a step out of the market to this point in time in what might happen in the next five, six months because of, of what we're potentially going to miss out on, quite frankly. Alex said many times through last year that 2019 really was a classic where you could have got the macro call right, softer global growth, less than stellar earnings, and still get the market call really quite wrong as the equity market ripped on three rate cuts from the Federal Reserve and restarting the QE at the ECB 
Could 2020 play out in a similar way? Well, I'm conscious that, that at the turn of the year, having read through most of the institutional notes of the, the sort of year-ahead outlooks, most people were looking for a positive year. There were going to be catalysts that were going to drive that. We were going to see accommodative central banks. That still remains the case. We were also going to see a little bit more of an improvement as far as corporate data is concerned. That hasn't really panned out so far. hasn't reversed around, and obviously... I guess if we don't see that in Q2, we've now got a really good excuse as to why we're not seeing that. And we can use the excuse that this is temporary uh, and, and Q3, Q4 this year might well um, offer us some salvation in that regard. So, yeah, I think we've still got to be still got to be invested, still got to run with the way that the momentum is carrying things. Do you buy European stocks on a cheaper euro? <laughs> Uh, we, we, again, we've had this conversation a few times. Not yet. I, I, I think I believe that the German uh, uh, government may well be um, more angled towards putting their hands in their pockets and starting to do a bit more stimulus. Certainly the UK government's making lots of noises about that as well. But right here, right now, I, I'm not quite convinced. We're still, I guess, overweight in US equity um, exposure. But, but Al, does it become a problem? Does it become a problem at some point? Does that strong dollar become a headwind for U.S. stocks? Like it's going to take a chunk out of the S&P earnings story. And does the weak euro compensate over in Europe? Like are European exporters uh, and importers for that matter going to benefit from this single currency that's tracking down kind of through 107 or through 108 to 107 and people are talking about 105? Yeah, there will be a tipping point um, where the, the attractions outweigh the, the, the worries, as it were, and the lack of com- confidence that the, the, the European economy and, and economic region is giving us. I, I personally don't feel, as far as we're concerned, that, that we're at that point just yet. But you're right, there will be a tipping point where that, that, can, that, that balance is, is, uh, is, is, is outweighed. Alice McCaig, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time today. We greatly appreciate it. Alice McCaig joining us from Fern Wealth. Uh, Up next, we're going to hear from the boss of Deutsche Telekom. Solid numbers today. The Sprint transaction, obviously a focus of the T-Mobile business over in the United States. Matt Miller caught up with the CEO a little bit earlier on today. We're going to hear some of that conversation. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable, with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. John Farrow is over in New York. I'm Guy Johnson joining you here in London. Let's talk about Deutsche Telekom. Really solid numbers being delivered by the German group a little bit earlier on. Stock finishing up by 4.46%. City coming out and describing the numbers as decent. uh, And uh, certainly the update taken reasonably positive. Uh, the analyst over there saying that the uh, the story coming out of Germany were uh, was particularly strong, uh, and that uh, the Europe kind of really reasonably reassuring uh, when it comes to the outlook for Deutsche uh, Telekom. Uh, the other issue, obviously, is the Sprint uh, T-Mobile takeover. Uh, Tim Hotigas, uh, the chief executive officer at DT Deutsche Telekom, says the telecommunications giant is aiming to overtake Verizon and A and T and T in terms of U.S. market share. He spoke to Bloomberg's Matt Miller from Bonn, Germany. Here is some of that conversation. 
Your share price has done quite well, not just today, but in the sector. You're the best performer of late. What do you want to tell shareholders, Tim? What are you What are you going to be able to do for shareholders as a safe business that produces returns? Um, are you going to Are you going to be able to give money back this year? Look, the first thing is our purpose is we won't stop until everyone is connected. And what we are doing is without investments into infrastructure, you will not convince customers. And that is what we did over the last seven years and quite successfully investing a little bit more than the competition. And this is paying off right now. We are leading the, 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 the performance tests in out of 12 markets. In 11 markets, we are number one. And this is something which we, which where we get a, a payback on this one. This is creating cash flow, the customers and their revenues. This is enabling us to invest, but it en enables us as well to pay the dividends. And what we have said, you know, we had an increase by 10% over the last six years on the dividend year by year. For this year, we decided something differently. We decided this time to cut the dividend a bit. It's still a four and a half percent, you know, um, yield, which, which our investors get for the, for the back. But nevertheless, we want to do this integration of Sprint in a perfect manner. And on top of, let's say, the year we create this super value, which is coming from the merger, 43 billion, 43 billion of synergies by integrating the two networks, plus the opportunity to gain ground against AT&T and Verizon. Um, we have 140 million customers in the U.S. on eye level with the AT&T and Verizon in the future. And our attempt is to become the number one in the U.S. market. When you talk about procurement and vendors, uh, along with 5G technology, there's one issue that I think of, of course. Nancy Pelosi uh, last week was talking about if you use Huawei in your network, you're essentially um, doing uh, all your business out in the open with the Chinese state police. Now, she may be getting a little bit dramatic, but are you concerned that if you use, for example, Huawei equipment building out your 5G network here in Germany, that uh, the U.S. is going to retaliate against T-Mobile and your, your American assets? We are always very concerned. We are paranoid about the security of data, security of the network infrastructure, because we are the enabler for a lot of industries with our technology, which we are providing, both on mobile and on a fixed line infrastructure. Um, that said, in the U.S., we don't have that issue. In the U.S., we have Nokia and Ericsson being deployed, and the architecture of the, of the access network and the uh, core network is totally Chinese-free. In Europe is a little bit different to this um, uh, from the history of uh, how we how we build the networks. So what our main focus is first is software is that we control the encryption and the steering of our infrastructure. Second, become vendor uh, independent. So we have, we have alternative vendors which are providing the infrastructure. Thirdly, the softwareization, which we can better control, and we have no players in this environment, which are not the big guys uh, which we see in the world. And on top of that, a, a, a security-driven technology where we are controlling. We are highly advocating Open RAN together with Vodafone, Telefonica, and others, which is a software standard we as an industry defining and not being provided by vendors uh, out of the industry together with them, but under the control or uh, under the leadership of the telco operators. That was the CEO of Deutsche Telekom talking to Matt Miller a little bit earlier on. 
John, this battle over Huawei and what is going on between Europe and the United States, I, I, I feel we're still in the foothills of it. Yeah, I agree. Boris Johnson got really, really into the uh, into hot water with, with President Trump over this, and that could end up spilling over into the trade deal that the UK ultimately gets with the, with the United States. Europe is walking a fine line. I, Matt and I, funnily enough, after this conversation, were looking at kind of where does Germany trade? Germany's trading patterns are more exposed to China than they are to the United States. Hence, I guess, Huawei has to be part of the picture. Interesting, though, that Australia, with equally as much exposure to China, has chosen to lock out Huawei. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's just so much more complex. And I was talking to Sean Donald of Bloomberg about this. Some of this is just really not black and white. The other thing that I found really interesting in the last 24 hours and just don't think has got enough media pickup, especially stateside, because we're so consumed at the moment with the debates taking place later in Nevada, is that the president had this tweet yesterday that effectively accused administration officials, officials within his own administration, as using the national security line as an excuse far too often and making the point that he wants America open for business. He wants to do business with China. He doesn't want to shut things down. He's worried that business will only go elsewhere. And this was directed at a range of issues, including engine exports into China. But it was this rare pushback against the China hardliners with the administration. So we've heard a lot from the likes of Wilbur Ross. Commerce Secretary. We've heard a lot from Mr. Resper, I believe, the Defence Secretary as well. We haven't heard very much from the President of the United States himself on this issue until just yesterday, Guy. It's just amazing, though, how this fits in with the wider narrative that his administration has generated, that that China is is the enemy. Like He talked after the Phase 1 trade deal about the kind of the two nations being being friends again. But ostensibly, we still find ourselves in a in a situation where tariffs have been jacked up really quite considerably. That is a uh, that's that's kind of grit in the mechanism uh, of trade that he is talking about, and there is no kind of sight at all at this point of what ultimately a phase two trade deal is is going to look like. It's hard to kind of look at an administration and get a clear idea when it's talking out to two different sides of its mouth at this point. The president's going to be in uh, Phoenix a little bit later on. Maybe we'll get more on this then. Uh, from John, from myself, we're going to carry on this conversation. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. From New York City and the city of London, you are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAV Digital Radio. This it's Bloomberg Radio, and this Wednesday at the close, the FTSE higher by 1.02%. We had some weight to the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, another 108 points, up by 8 tenths of 1%. The equity market worldwide doing quite nicely, including the United States, where the Nasdaq has really bounced back, up by 0.93%. The S&P 500 up by 0.59%. Yesterday, we had a revenue warning from Apple regarding the coronavirus in China on both the supply and demand side. The stock Tuesday. Day dropped by 1.83%. It's up today by 1.54%. Today, as Guy pointed out earlier in the program, Adidas and Puma coming out and saying business really isn't good at all. It's being pummeled. Adidas still looking at some decent numbers this year. The stock is up by 2.54%. Guy, it is remarkable. Puma was up even more. I was uh, Puma was up over 12% today. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> 
to see what has been going on here. Um, the market is just the market is just determined to look through all of this, and yet everybody that comes and sits next to me at the moment says it's it's hard to to kind of stay away from this market, but I have severe reservations about the ability uh, to carry on in the way that we are at the moment, and kind of that that kind of dichotomy that's in the market at the moment has to be resolved at some point. I just don't know when. I, 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 you get through this earnings season, and people are kind of are issuing warnings. Are we going to see a series of pre-warnings? Do you think coming into the next earnings season? When does that start? I don't know. Are we going I, to forgive that and call that transitory yeah. too? Transitory is the word of the moment, and I still, yeah. from a market point of view have no understanding of what it means. We'll talk about that with Mr. McKee in just a moment. Let's get you some top stories worldwide with Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet. Hey, Charlie. Well, hello there. Let's begin with UK inflation picking up for the first time in six months in January, tempering expectations for a Bank of England interest rate cut later this year. The Office for National Statistics says consumer prices rose a stronger than forecast 1.8% in January from a year earlier, the fastest since July. Qatar Airways has lifted its stake in British Airways parent IAG, tightening its grip on the European carrier after expansion in the Gulf was thwarted by a Saudi-led embargo. The increase to 25.1% from 21.4% comes less than a month after IAG removed a cap on non-European Union investment. The move gives Qatar greater leverage as IAG Chief uh, Chief Executive Officer Willie Walsh prepares to exit the post next month and BA grapples with fallout from the UK separating from the European Union. Piper Sandler today increasing its price target on Tesla by more than 27%. Analysts there say Tesla's potential success in energy generation and storage will be the next big thing to fuel the rally that's already caused the stock to almost triple in the past year. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrell back to you now here in New York. Hey Charlie, thank you. So the price target from Piper Sandler today, as Charlie was pointing out, the note just there, 928. The stock right now, 924, let's call it 925 and round the whole thing up. Six months ago, if you came out with the price target of 928 on Tesla, people would have thought you were perhaps crazy. Um, the stock just short of that right now. It's not even a bullish call really, is it? If we're right by their Except price no. target at the moment? It's not. Isn't that insane? Yeah. I Maybe that's just a fair value. I Does it struggle to go no, up from here? The momentum's I with dear. it. I'm going to ask Dan Ives of Wedbush about that whole thesis from Piper about the charging stations, the solar part of the company, whether it could equate to what is happening with the storage, whether it could equate to what is happening with the automotive business. And he was pretty doubtful about that guy. Yeah. But a lot of this is being taken again on faith, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you, you you can make a, I think you can make a case for for Tesla at any price at this point. I really do. I think I it could be worth seven thousand. Well, Arc, what does Arc it Capital always 70. comes out and talks about seven thousand yeah. and crazy yep. numbers? Michael McKee doesn't want to talk about Tesla. I can sense that guy doesn't, and neither do I really. Actually, uh, I, 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 a friend of mine bought one of the original Teslas. Oh, the really? Sports cars. How's that going? That was a lot of fun. To drive, I mean, there was... For anyone that's not been in an electric car, when it accelerates, it's a very weird feeling, isn't it? It snaps your head back. It, and, though, and then it, it stays so quickly, there. Yeah. It, because there's no gear change. It's just right. constant. It's, it's weird. A continuous, it's a continuous it's torque curve. so weird. Uh, it's, it's the future, I guess. 
At least until we have <laughs> the car drives itself. And then, you know, well, I, I did say that no one really wanted to talk about this, but we're talking about it anyway. <laughs> transitory. How long before it's no longer transitory? Um, because everything, I guess, to some degree, by definition, is somewhat transitory. Right. Most uh, things in the economy are. They come in and they, they come out. Nothing's permanent. In economics, is it? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> the worst thing you can say, uh, I was taught early on, is this time it's different. We don't know, but there are some hopeful signs maybe, and that is that the um, the number of new cases, the rate of increase in the number of new cases is falling. There was a report out of Wuhan today that they've that there are more people being cured than are coming down with the disease. So if maybe we're at a turning point, that would be great news. But um, the other thing you have to look at is how long it's going to take to get people who went elsewhere for the holidays back to work. Uh, Bloomberg's um, economics people suggested that, uh, you know, there's almost two mi- um, million people um, that are are not, 200 million people, I think, they said, that are not at work and have to travel and that companies are working at a real disadvantage. Those that are able to get open don't have the workers to produce stuff. And obviously we've seen all the stories about nobody shopping over there. So it's going to take a little while for the economy to get back on its feet once they get past the point where they can open up the cities and let people go back to work. So we're still a ways away from that. Um, That's the best definition of transitory I can give you. But it's transitory one quarter or two quarters? Well, right now, uh, you're looking at a quarter. Uh, I, I think it's fairly clear that this won't be turned around by the end of March. But if we can, if they can get it uh, to the point where they're, they're back at work in April, then uh, it would be a one-quarter story. The question is, how fast do you make up as much as you can make up that, uh, of yep. spending that was postponed? Certain amount just never will be. You won't dry clean So is clothes, Q, but... Q2 is not going to be symmetrical to Q1, is basically what you're saying? Um, no, uh, I wouldn't think so. I think it would be a, a slow a ramp up to faster growth at the end of uh, Q2. And uh, over a period of time, it would you'd, you'd get back a lot of what you lost. But that will be hard to find in the data. If you're a policymaker, let's say you're on the Federal Reserve – and you're in the business of risk management, how comfortable are you with the transitory narrative and how long will you be comfortable with it for? What do you think the tolerance levels of a policymaker on the Fed are, Mike? Do they let the market dictate or do they sit there and say, you know what, this has been a couple of months now. Maybe it's not going to bounce back as quickly. Maybe they needs our support. For years I would have said they don't let the market dictate, but now they seem to. But then the market is saying everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, they haven't seen any evidence that the economy is going down. And until and unless they do, they won't act because rates are so low now, they don't want to use up ammunition that they might need later. This weird push and pull where the market's comfortable with the Fed having its back and the Fed is comfortable because the market hasn't moved yet. Maybe that's what the Fed wants. I don't know. Fed minutes coming up later. They'll be in focus. Two Eastern at seven local in the United Kingdom. Let's talk about that next with Michael McKee from New York and London. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening. Seven o'clock tonight, we get Fed Minutes. Pay attention. There is going to be a lot of information. Uh, the question is, which bit should we be focusing on? Mike McKee is still with us uh, to give us a sense of what he is looking at. Uh, Mike, a lot of people are talking about kind of a real focus on the taper of the bill buying uh, when it comes to the balance sheet. Is that where you're spending going to be spending most of your time? Yeah, and that won't be probably in the section that it actually describes the meeting of the principles. Sure. It'll be in the staff briefing part at the very beginning. But I just don't think we're going to learn a lot. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot new in this. I mean, the minutes are coming out, so you have to say, well, they could do this or they could do that. But you have to remember that Jay Powell has been all over the place. He spoke at a news conference right after the last decision and kind of told us what they talked about. And then he's had two hearings up on Capitol Hill. And we've got innumerable Fed officials out speaking today, and they have been for a little bit. So if they had any timing, any anything that would really tell the markets anything, I suspect we would have already learned it. Uh, we know they are talking about going until they get through tax season. And we know that they've already cut back twice on the amount they're buying uh, at each auction. So um, beyond that, what else are they going to say except we're going to you know, gradually taper we think we can? Anything about what's happening in China? Any opposing views? It's always interesting when a Fed chair goes in front of the media like yourself. Mike, you're in the room. Usually they're representing the views of the FOMC. The outliers often don't come up in the... The news conference comes up in the Federal Reserve minutes themselves, and I just wonder if there's anyone on the FOMC that we have heard from, haven't heard from, that you think might be this outlier that makes themselves sound a little bit more noisier in the minutes, showing some concern about what is happening in China. I don't think so, because you have to remember this was January 29th so and January 28th, and so at that point there was so little information other than this was happening and China was starting to isolate its people um, we're we're three weeks away from that now, and so they had they didn't have much, so I think everybody there probably was of the view that yeah this this could be bad let's keep an eye on it but we don't really know so there's not much we can do. Just in terms of looking forward, the Fed continues not to hit its inflation targets. Um, I think over the last ten years, it has hit its inflation targets. 90, uh, kind of 5% of the time. It's missed it by 95%. I think the ECB's probably got a slightly worse record. Yet every Fed speaker I listen to seems to push the point that hitting the mandate is important. Are we going to get clues on what the the restructuring of the, let's call it the reaction function, is going to look like? Um, maybe. The staff has briefed them uh, on a sort of irregular basis as they go up through the year last year. Uh, on progress, but it's been more in the form of, well, if you do this, here's kind of things that could happen. Um, Nothing that tells you exactly what they're going to do. Now, we have heard a number of them embrace the idea of some form of inflation averaging, letting inflation run a little bit higher. There are several ways of doing that. Um, But probably not going to get a whole lot 
um, new that we don't already know on that subject as well. I mean, I hate to make it sound like we're talking about something that's really going to be boring, but I suspect it's really going to be boring. <laughs> you have to say it's going to be boring. Well, the minutes used to be really important because we didn't know what was going on. I mean, there was a time when I first started doing this, you didn't know who voted for what. You didn't know, you know what the vote was and whether it was controversial. I mean, okay. there, were, there was a time you didn't even know what they did. And so now they tell us every little thing. So there's not a lot of mystery anymore. Okay. Mr. Mike McKee, it's going to be exciting. You're going to find something in there. It's going to be boring. That is going to be exciting. I think the Fed wants to make it boring. I think you're probably right. Yeah. Put out out 80 blank pages. I think people will be much better served by watching Champions League. Yes. You'll enjoy yourself more, put it that way. That probably is. In fact, that almost certainly is. Some true. very good goals yesterday evening. That, yeah, I've that, seen that, 19, that nineteen-year-old for Borussia Dortmund. Yeah, yeah. What's his name? Harlow. Wow, ridiculous. Where did he come from? Um, up next, we're going to be talking about digital taxation. There's another fascinating subject for you. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is the cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson. On Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. We turn now to an interview focused on the EU with European Union Competition Commissioner Marguerite Vestager. She joined Bloomberg's Maria Tadeo earlier on on Bloomberg. She discussed the European Commission's plan to set global standards that tech companies around the world have to follow. Take a listen to what she had to say. This was a very big week for technology in Europe. It really was a number of issues. And I want to talk about Mark Zuckerberg because he was here on Monday and he seemed to be saying, you know what, I'm happy to see more guidance from governments. And, you know, I'm happy to do regulation. Some will tell you it's a big shift in tone. I'm not sure if I buy it. Well, there's a difference between a shift in tone and then a shift in behavior, uh, of course. Uh, and I think uh, everyone appreciates that we can have another debate by now about the responsibility of, uh, of giant uh, platforms. Uh, but I think the important thing is to see real change uh, on ground. Uh, and in that, well, we are still considering if not uh, regulation uh, is needed to make sure that all the things that we have discussed and decided in the real world also in, is represented when we're in our digital reality. And some of the critics, and I'm not just thinking about Facebook, but other social media will tell you we're very concerned actually about hate speech. We're very concerned about the impact this is having on people's lives. But also there's no point asking for more regulation if you don't comply with the current regulation. Is that something that you would say is, well, the point? Well, I think there's two things at stake here. One is our sort of digital citizens' right, that we have the right to our own data, to be forgotten, to understand what it is that we sign up for. Here I still think we have some way to go. Uh, you know, I'm the kind of person who reads terms and conditions for fun. We are very, very few. Uh, most people, they just sign off. Uh, and I think we still have way to go to make sure that we do not only have rights, but that we can also exercise our rights. The second thing, of course, is what kind of responsibility uh, will a platform have? Uh, not sort of a specific liability of this ex- exact uh, posting or this exact item uh, being brought out for sale, but what kind of system should you have? What kind of responsibility do you have? 
when you become a giant um, intermediary, uh, a giant platform that works as a gatekeeper uh, to important parts of our society. And the big debate now is when you look at a company, perhaps like Facebook or social media overall, do you hold them liable for what goes on the platform or do you just look at them as something that just essentially publishes information but it's not really responsible for the content? I guess that's a big debate now. Well, that is indeed the big debate. And I think one should be uh, careful uh, because if you take uh, something like eBay, uh, if I think there are millions and millions of, of people putting up things for sale every day uh, to make them liable for someone uh, having put a fake back up for sale, I think that is very, very, very far-reaching. Uh, but it's a different thing to have a system to say, well, actually, we don't want our customers uh, to be cheated. So maybe that's the discussion to have. But we have made absolutely no conclusions yet. But I think it's very important that as many people as possible engage in this debate so that our digital reality is as good as our uh, non-digital reality. And in terms of uh, today, there was a big presentation made on artificial intelligence. There's uh, issues that some will tell you is the next big tiers such as uh, facial recognition that poses some problems in some countries perhaps China I'm not sure how you're or how concerned you are about the use that that gets uh, done and provided in countries like China what is the way forward for Europe however do you think people are aware of the implications that technology like this carries well this is why I think it's important to debate it uh, for me you know I really love my mother and it's very rare that I do something that she wouldn't approve of but still I didn't want her to watch me all the time And the risk is that we enter into a society where everyone is watched all the time, not only watched, but also identified. Uh, and that, I think, takes very, very thorough condition uh, to figure out if there are any things that can actually uh, justify if you enter into that kind of society. Right now already, the GDPR will say, well, no, only on the very, very specific circumstance can you do this. And I think that's a very good start because then people still know I have rights and only in very specific circumstance will I be the object of remote uh, identification. And uh, when you look at this entire week and everything that you've put on the table, some will say this is a wake-up moment for Europe. And the main takeaway is that the European Union is saying we've been too lenient perhaps with American technology. We have to find our own way. Is that something that you would say is fair? It's, it's enough with the old system. We need our own? Well, to some degree, yes. Uh, also because this is not a new invention. This is the European method. Uh, we have done that for decades and decades and decades, saying, wow, this is great, this is new. But this fraction, actually, we find that that is a challenge to our fundamental values. So here we just say thanks, but no thanks. And for the rest of it, go, go, go. That was Marita Dow with the European Union Commission Now, Marguerite Vestager focused on competition. Speaking of competition, Vestager, remember last year, had to uh, shut down the Siemens proposed merger with with Alstom, Guy. Remember back to that. And now we're looking at Alstom going through with the purchase of Bombardier, the rail unit. Is that right? Well, they clearly think that that going through the regulatory ringer again is is worth doing, that this is a sector that needs consolidation. The the big question, John, is does Europe want to have big champions that are capable of competing with with Chinese um, sort of size and scale? And the the biggest kind of rail producer of of engines and, and carriages in the world is based in China. Europe has a whole series of potential competitors, along with Bombardier, which essentially is coming out of Canada, but has a huge business uh, in in Europe, in Germany and elsewhere. Does Europe want to have that? Um, Or does it put competition first? 
or is competition global? And I think that's yeah. the issue that Europe is really grappling with here. Does it want to have internal competition or does it need to have champions that are capable of competing on a global stage? As the world potentially gets kind of into spheres of influence, I wonder whether that's a relevant argument still. But nevertheless, does Europe want to have that kind of size and heft? Because there aren't many industries where it does. Aviation is one, but there aren't many others. Well, on the tech side, I think you want national champions, don't you? And when I say national, you want European champions, don't you? Isn't that what they should be focused on building up? Well, th- this is this is the question, isn't it? I, I, what does this do to spur, spur innovation in Europe? And I really struggle with that. Let me leave you with this. What do you think the prospects of Nokia and Ericsson getting together are? Zero at this point. Because I don't think it would be allowed from a regulatory point of Isn't view. Isn't that interesting? Because America would love that. Yeah. And in fact, it is being actively talked about. Um, Fed Minutes coming up a little bit later. We've got some great coverage coming up on Bloomberg on that. Of course, there is uh, the debate taking place, the Democratic debate as well. Uh, I suspect a lot of people are going to be paying to the, uh, attention to that one overnight. This is Bloomberg.